Good morning. We're going to be continuing on in Luke this morning. So if you'd like to follow along with me, I'll be reading from Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. We are at Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. And as we said earlier, Jesus is about to head into the garden to pray. If you have a Bible, please open it up or go on your smartphone and uh, find your way, navigate your way there. Uh, We are in the midst of a series that we've themed the way of the king. As we zoom in on a narrow focus on Jesus as we move to the end of, this, of his, uh, Luke's gospel here. There is something sacred about the eve of battle, isn't there? It's, it's the sort of thing that we see in movies. Maybe you have your favorite war movie, your favorite uh, action film. Uh, there's something sacred about that. And I don't know, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that Shakespeare was the Stan Lee of the 16th century. Uh, Stan Lee, if you don't know who he is, he's the creator of Marvel. Uh, And you might be wondering, will they ever stop making Marvel movies? I I don't know. I'm not sure if it's ever going to end. Some of you may not want it to end. you may be asking, why why is this so popular? Uh, There is something about these stories of conflict and sacrifice and devotion. It's almost as if the greater the odds, the more interesting the story and the appeal is. Well, uh, just to sort of show you that Stan Lee wasn't sort of the creator of this kind of cosmic drama. Um, I want to share a bit of Shakespeare with you uh, this morning. So uh, Shakespeare writes about a king, King Henry V. Uh, He's about to go into the Battle of Agincourt. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, It's on the fields of uh, of France. Uh, I'm not going to get into the backstory on all this, but what you need to know is that King Henry of England is trying to prepare his small number of troops for a great battle that is about to unfold. The odds are stacked against them. And I'm probably gonna butcher this, but try to follow because I think Shakespeare puts it so well. On the eve of battle, he writes, the poor condemned English like sacrifices by their watchful fires sit patiently and inly ruminate the morning's danger. And their gesture sad, investing lank-lean cheeks and war-worn coats, presenteth them unto the gazing moon so many horrid ghosts. He says, the soldiers are in despair. Oh, now, who will behold the royal captain of this ruined band, walking from watch to watch, from tent to tent? Let him cry praise and glory on his head. 
Shakespeare envisions us to see the king moving amongst his troops on the night before battle. The bard goes on, for forth he goes and visits all his host, bids them good morrow and with a modest smile and calls them brothers, friends, and countrymen. Upon his royal face there is no note how dread an army hath enrounded him, nor doth he dedicate one jot of color unto the weary and all-watched night, but freshly looks and overbears a taint with cheerful semblance and sweet majesty that every wretch, pining and pale before, beholding him, plucks comfort from his looks." A largesse universal like the sun, his liberal eye doth give to everyone thawing cold fear. That mean and gentle all behold, as may unworthiness define a little touch of Harry in the night. This is Shakespeare's account of King Henry before battle. He moves amongst his troops and he's presented here as someone who has no dread of the battle that's about to go before him. There is no sense of despair among the king. You see, the king is the one who's moving amongst his troops. He's looking them in the face. He's thawing their fear with his very gaze and his very countenance. It's the stuff that makes for great theater and for great movies. I loved this movie when it came out in 1989. It took me a while to be able to pick up the old English. But you see in that lower right-hand picture there, that's him cloaked in the night visiting his troops. This is one way to picture a king on the eve of battle. We might be tempted to, to say, well, if I was going to write the story of the Son of God coming to earth and, and vanquishing the enemy, this is how I would write it. But that's not the story we have. We don't have Jesus going around and cheering everybody up, grabbing him on the shoulder or saying, hey guys, don't worry, it's going to be all right. We don't have Jesus calm and cool and collected. We don't have Jesus acting in some sort of Teflon manner as if this is just one moment and another moment's coming. Instead, we see Jesus in the garden on his knees. This morning, we're going to be considering the king's petition what is Jesus asking for? What is he praying for? And, and the theme of this morning is that the way of our king is the way of submission. How does that make you feel? <laughs> you see, sometimes I think I want Jesus to be like Harry. We're looking for a little touch of Jesus in the night. A little, little coming alongside and, and, and saying, don't worry, it's going to be all right. Now, there's reasons for hope. But the big question is, why is Jesus praying in the garden? He's about to go to the cross. Of all the things that he could do, why do the gospel writers make this a central theme? 
of all the moments leading up to his arrest, of all the things that are about to transpire, why is this the one that they gravitate towards? Even though many of them were struggling to stay awake. The big idea this morning is that Jesus prevailed through prayer. And for us, it raises the question of how will we meet our trials? How are we going to face the ordeal that comes upon us? You may find yourself in an ordeal right now, a trial. You may be facing a test. And you've been wondering how you're going to sum up your resources, how you're going to, how you're going to navigate your way through this. You don't see a positive outcome. Maybe you feel like Harry's band of men. You feel like a horrid ghost just waiting for the sun to come up. Well, the good news today is that Jesus actually enables us to face our trial, to face our ordeal, and we're going to see how. By way of context, as we've said, this is too small for me to read, so I'm just going to have to trust that, <laughs> trust that I remember. My apologies. <laughs> it's closer behind me than it is in front of me. Uh, Jesus, he's, he's entered Jerusalem as king. He's been teaching for a week. He's celebrated the Passover meal. He's at that Passover meal. He predicts his betrayal, right? He's, he is instituting this, this meal as a remembrance of him. And I can't read the last one. There we go. He instructs his disciples. And then in verse 39, we're told he marches out to the garden. Now, by way of overview, here's how this passage lines up this morning. Jesus moves out to the Mount of Olives and his disciples follow him. When he's there, the passage breaks down into a very tight unit in Luke's gospel. And the best way to illustrate this is sort of by highlighting it in color here. So you'll notice that there's a series of pairs. This is called a chiasm. You don't need to know that. But it's a literary device that is meant to emphasize certain aspects. So just like I've shown here with the colors, your eye is drawn to the middle. But the, the surrounding layers, like layers of an onion, are meant to parallel each other. And so we have this passage beginning and closing with Jesus instructing his disciples to pray. And then in the, in the next sort of layer of verses in, we see Jesus withdrawing or being torn away and then kneeling in prayer. And then we see him returning and rising in prayer. But in the middle, verses 42 to 44, is the heart of this text and it's Jesus' prayer. Why is Jesus praying in the garden? Let's come to the Lord now and ask his help. Father, would you give us encouragement this morning as we seek to understand what you're trying to say to us from the scriptures. God, you alone hold the words of life. Lord, they're not in any man. They're not in any woman. They come ultimately from you. And Lord, we can best, only best through the Spirit's enabling both speak and hear eternal truths. And so, Lord, may you shape our hearts this morning for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. So the big question, why is Jesus praying in the garden? I think if we look at Jesus' prayer, he's going to give us a model, 
It's almost as if he gives the perfect model. Now, I'm not saying the point is that it's a model. Like, oh, hey, here's, let, me, let me demonstrate for you. No, there's a lot more significant things going on than a demonstration here. But for us, what Jesus is doing, he is expressing his need. He's expressing his sorrow. And he's expressing his submission. All of these things are instructive for us as we prepare to face our ordeal, our trial, Jesus prevails through prayer. Now, there's lots of kinds of prayer in the Bible. There's corporate prayer, there's silent prayer, there's prayer of uh, requests, prayer of thanksgiving, prayers of celebration, prayers, of prayers that turn into songs. There's all sorts of different prayers in the Scripture. The Bible tells us as the church today to pray in the Spirit on all, at all times with all different kinds of prayers. This prayer that Jesus prays is monumental and significant. The first thing we learn, oops, excuse me, is that if we're going to face our trial, we need to pray to voice our need. So as Jesus depends upon his Father, so we should call on our Father for his help. Look with me, Jesus in verse 42, excuse me, verse 41, withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. This is instructive. If you know you have a big test coming tomorrow, what's your first thing that you do? You probably crack the books, don't you? You say, I'm going to study. I'm going to make myself ready. I'm going to try to master the material. Oftentimes the prayers don't come until the proctor hands out the pencil and you say, God, please help that this, all my preparation will, will come to fruition here. But here Jesus, Jesus calls upon the Father. It's an expression of dependence. And I just want to ask you today, if Jesus in, face, in facing this trial or ordeal is going to prevail through prayer and believes he needs the Father's help. He needs help from heaven, which he's going to get. He needs guidance from heaven. He needs the alignment of the will of God. If, if Jesus needs this, do we not need it? I was confronted profoundly by my prayerlessness this week. And, and, and as much as I'm trying to rationalize it, well, I'm so busy, oh, I got so many things going on, and I got a, you know, this person, that person, and I was feeling this way, and da, da, da. I, I just keeps, it just keeps leading back to one conclusion, which is I think I can handle it on my own. All the toing and froing and the back and forthing and the, the staying up late and the rising early and all, all, all this. Alongside prayerlessness. It, it renders a verdict of my heart that says, Jonathan, you think you can do it. If Jesus is about to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan himself, with the enemy, and he gets on his knees, why don't I have to get on mine? 
You see, this in itself flies in the face of the current that our culture swims in. I don't know if you would put it this way, but to me it helps. We are becoming an increasingly sort of white coat culture. And by that, I don't mean that we love going to doctors. I mean, everyone becomes an expert in their thing. And, and so, everyone's sort of got their thing, and they create their identity around being that thing. And then you expect everybody else to be an expert in their thing. And if no one else does, you know, practices their expertise the way you feel the pressure to practice your expertise, you get cranky and upset and a bit whingy, right? Because we all expect each other to be professionals and to have it all together. I'm not surprised we've come to this conclusion because we've written God out of the story a long time ago. The idea that we are creatures dependent upon a, 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 a divine author and creator for our very existence hasn't, hasn't really seemed to enter, enter our consciousness much anymore. You see, the very fact that you sit down to pray, the very fact that you bow your head, the very fact that you vocalize, verbalize, journal, whatever, the moment you start doing that, let me tell you what your soul is saying. I can't do it. The moment we start to pray, and I'm talking earnest prayer, I'm not talking prayer for show and prayer for making people impressing people. I'm talking sincere prayer. The moment you pray sincerely, what your soul is saying is, I need help. Jesus depends upon his Father. Have you noticed how this mimics the Lord's prayer? Jesus' experience in the garden is very similar. When Jesus is telling his disciples, Earlier in the gospel, they say, teach us to pray. And he teaches them, here's how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Give us, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. That's the time of testing, the time of trial. Lead us not into that, but deliver us from evil. Jesus had been teaching them this, and here he is in the garden, and this is exactly what he's doing. Father, he's calling on his Father. We need to pray in the face of our trial to voice our need and our dependency on God. The second thing we see in this expression of prayer is that we need to pray to endure our sorrow. As Jesus accepts the cost of obedience, so we should persevere in faith. Folks, I love, I, I, I love stories of the miraculous. And I love stories of, of heaven breaking in and, and healing and power. I love that, absolutely. But you can't convince me this is heaven. You can't convince me that we are now living fully and finally that this is it. As our sister prayed this morning, there is sorrow all around us. There's sorrow in our past. There's, we know there's sorrow in our future. And if you don't think that's the case, just try getting old. Your body starts telling you that. There's sorrow, so how do we endure that? You know, Sometimes I have these sort of 
cynical, cryptic brainwaves, you know? What if, what if Jesus had to be, you know, what if Jesus didn't really know what to do? And he was living in our day and he's about to face this battle. You know, what, what would he do if he was in our culture? You know, I think, like, I think about Jesus scrolling TikTok, you know, at night, right? Oh, what, what, what do I do? What do I do? Okay, five tips, five tips to suffer. Okay, all right. Uh, what, what do I do? Um, five, five ways to beat the devil. Okay. I haven't seen anybody, and maybe I'm not on TikTok enough, tell me if you find it. I haven't seen anybody do a TikTok on how to endure sorrow. There's all sorts of books about how to have your best life now. There's a great bestseller it's still on the shelves. I haven't read it, but it's still on the shelves. It basically uses an expletive and it says, how to live your life without giving up. You know what? Okay. If you want to put blinders on and say that there is no sorrow and you can just continue to do your own thing. You see, this is the kind of counsel that the world gives. But Jesus, he endures suffering. As Emily read this morning, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He despised its shame. You know, today, do we have a category for enduring shame? Could you endure shame? Could I endure shame? Man, not well. Not well. I was walking around the soccer field yesterday. My son is having his first soccer game, trial game, and I, I wanted to go over and say something to him, and I was on the other field, and, and I had a 15-year-old referee in front of everybody say, hey, you're not allowed to stand there. Go over there. <laughs> right? I'm like, I can't endure the shame, right? Then I moved to the corner. He stopped the game again. He said, not there. You got to be there. More shame. You see, this is how just, just I use myself an example here. We're not breeding into people. We're not breeding into our, our, our Christian disciples the reality that following Jesus is not, it's not going to make you popular. It's not going to give you accolades. It's not going to make you famous in the way that the world wants to be famous. It's, it's not going to do that. You're going to have to eat shame. And it's not going to be fair. How do you do that? You go to the Father. Jesus says in his prayer, he says, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus is embarrassed, and that's, I think it's way more than that. I'm using the language of Hebrews to talk about the things that we would find difficult, the shame. I want you to stop and think for a moment what this meant for the Lord. You see, we know that Jesus, he didn't, he didn't entrust himself, John says. He didn't entrust himself to human beings. He didn't let their opinion of him hold sway. So what was so hard about this? I suggest to you, it's the sinless son of God becoming sin for us. Jesus had to become the very thing that was anathema to him. 
He had to become unholy. He had to become unrighteous. He had to be cut off from the Father. He had to endure the rejection of of human beings. But think about what that would have meant for him. We endure through prayer. You see, it's not as if Jesus just went to the cross and said, this is going to hurt. I don't, I don't want to go through the hurt of this. It was more than that. It was more than a fear of physical pain. I would be afraid of the physical pain. I don't know about you, but I, physical pain, I, get it away from me. Give me the Panadol. Give me the drugs. Give me, give me all the, I don't want the pain. I would have been me. I'd have been terrified of that. But the sense is not that Jesus is complaining about the pain. Why? Because we watch the physical pain he goes through and you don't hear him complaining. You hear him silently taking it. I'm not saying he didn't cry out. I'm not saying he didn't, he didn't experience pain. He did experience pain, but there's more to this. <sighs> Now, I'm going to definitely have to turn around for this one. Sorry. Uh, This is from D.A. Carson. He says, Christians are not asked to accept suffering without vindication, death, and self-denial without the promise of heaven. Evil may now be mysterious, but it will not be triumphant. We are not spiritual masochists who can only be fulfilled by suffering. If there is any sense in which we delight in sufferings, it is that we delight to follow the Lord Jesus who suffered. Even he did not delight in sufferings. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith was one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Carson is saying, it's not as if we're suffering for the sake of suffering's sake. There's joy at the end of it. There's vindication. Finally, Jesus in his prayer expresses his submission to the Father's will. And I encourage you, this is what we need to do in prayer as well. As Jesus entrusted himself to God, so we should yield our desires to him. I commend to you right next to this passage in your Bible, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. I believe Paul might have had this in mind as he's recounting this suffering of Jesus. He said, in your attitudes toward one another, have the same mindset that Christ Jesus had, who though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. God said, you must go. In fulfillment of the scripture in Isaiah, which says it was the Lord's will to crush him. It's not saying it's his pleasure to crush him. It's saying it's his will. It's the only way that Jesus could go. And in Jesus, in prayer, though he doesn't, though he doesn't desire it, he is willing to go. He submits his will to the Father. He doesn't turn around to the Father and say, hey, you know that I'm divine just like you are. You know that I came from heaven where you dwell. 
Who are you to ask me to become a human? Who are you to ask me to climb up on the cross? Jesus didn't say that. He said, Father, if there's another way, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In submitting to the Father's will, he was agreeing to take all of the wrath of God upon humanity for their rebellion and to take that and to drink that wrath like a goblet full of bitter, poisonous destruction. And he drank it to the dregs. You say, why would he do that? Because he trusted. He trusted God. God said, this is my plan. There is no other way. There is no other way for my purposes to be accomplished, to redeem my creation, to exalt and to bring glory to myself and to vanquish the, the great enemy, the liar, the accuser, the devil himself. The way of our king is the way of submission. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is that Jesus was heard. God's will did prevail. And therefore, we are saved forever in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus was heard. You say, what do you mean? I thought he wanted the cup to pass. That wasn't his prayer. It wasn't all of his prayer. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. The Son of God cried out on his knees. After he prayed this, we're told, verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to strengthen him. Now, we might say, oh, great, the angel's here. Can you just sort of whoosh, do something? Get me out of here. Can you give me the Philip treatment and just sort of zoom me over to somewhere else? Send me to China, send me to Africa. No, the angel strengthens him. Okay, Jesus, what do you do with your strength? Verse 44, and being in anguish, notice the strength and the anguish are not mutually exclusive. You can be strong and be in anguish. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. The strength was to pray. The strength was to commune with the Father. I love what Paul Miller says. He says, when people stop praying, it's for one of two reasons. Either, number one, they don't believe he's able to do something, or number two, they don't believe he's willing to do something to help them. But Jesus is strengthened, and he prays more earnestly. And being in anguish, the sweat was like drops of blood falling. The, the comparison is, is it fell like drops of blood. He's not sweating blood. I know there's been studies done on that, but the Greek's pretty clear. It's sweat falling like blood drops. If you have a cut and you start to bleed, the blood will drip until it clots. Jesus' sweat is so profuse. He's in anguish. But he was heard. He was heard. Look at what Hebrews chapter 5 says. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions and with fervent cries and tears. This is anguish, folks. If you're crying in prayer, that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. 
If you're crying in prayer, it doesn't mean that, that, that you're outside of the will of God necessarily. <laughs> With fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Don't have time to unpack that. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus breaks the back of the devil in the garden. Everything that's going to happen from here on out is the cleaning up of the war. The decisive victory happened on his knees. The decisive victory is in Gethsemane. Because that's where the devil tried to rip the soul of the Son of Man out of the Father's will. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He submitted once again. And I can say to you, if, oh, <laughs> man, if, if we're going to prevail, it must be through prayer. It must be through prayer. Brothers and sisters, the issues that you're facing, it's not the interest rates. Now, I'm don't, not trying to, yes, it's an issue, right? It's not geopolitics. Yes, those are real things, absolutely. But can I tell you, the war that the enemy is waging is not for your bank account, and it's not for your house on your street. The war the enemy is waging is for your soul, and he's trying to tear your soul away from God He's trying to break your trust in him. And so we, through prayer, submit to Christ. Christ who is our high priest. So, how will we meet our trials? Look, Bible study is great. Knowing theology is really helpful. Worship music is fantastic. Cups of coffee with a believer, love it. I'm down for it. But how are we going to meet our trials? We have to meet them on our knees. And by that I mean we have to meet them in earnest prayer. We have to meet them in submission of our will. Yes, expressing our grief, expressing our lament. Yes, expressing our dependence on God. But we have to meet them on our knees. The Bible says the end of all things is near, so therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. As the worship band comes up, I invite you to consider Jesus our model. We face our testing as the same way he did, with faith. And we will prevail only because he prevailed, only because he was victorious. And so I want to leave you with three questions. The first is this, are you sleeping? Luke says the disciples were asleep because of sorrow. Have you come to a point in your life where you are so sad, you are so overwhelmed with your circumstances and with your fate, you, you, you've lost sight of hope and you've lost the light of God, and the love of God is dwindling in you. The disciples were sleeping because they were sad. Are you sleeping? And are you sad? 
If you're not sleeping, are you praying? Will you meet God? Somebody asked me this week, you know, I just wonder why prayer is so powerful. And I don't know how prayer works, but what I can tell you is of all of the means of grace that God gave us, in prayer we are directly communing with our Creator. We are meeting Him in spirit and in truth. How could it be anything but powerful? How could it be anything but effective? And finally, will you surrender? Is there something you're hanging on to? Sometimes I don't pray because I think I know what God's going to want me to do, and I don't want to do that. Make up your mind today that you're going to yield. Make up your mind today that you can trust him, even though that roadblock seems absolutely impossible to get through. But make up your mind that, you know what? It's not your job to get you through the roadblock. It's your job to submit to the will of God. We're going to sing a song that speaks of that surrender. So I invite you to stand right now as we sing this song. It's built around Jesus' prayer. And, And if you can't sing it, that's okay. But please hear the words. Hear the words and let them, let the Spirit of God move in your heart. Thanks, Emily.
We live.